6, and beginning in verse number 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. And I want to speak this morning on the fifth seal. What are we complaining about? Father, we ask that you'd bless your word here today. Speak to our hearts and open up our hearts and minds. Help us to be attentive. Help us, Lord, to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying. We realize, Lord, that your word here is not just an academic textbook of religion, but rather it is the living, breathing word of God. You call it the sword of the Spirit. So we ask now that you would take and, uh, Lord, uh, speak to us and help us to respond to what you're saying. And, Lord, if anyone here today is without Jesus Christ and lost in their sins, we pray that they would be saved before they leave this place today. We pray for everyone that is saved that we would uh, have a biblical perspective of this life that we live. And, Lord, the devil just tries so many different ways to distract us and get us off track and mess with our minds and, and our spirits and emotions. And I, I just pray, Father, that you would just draw us all in to your words and your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. <clears throat> I'll not spend time here this morning doing review of the previous messages of the first four seals that were open, but if you could, as we've already seen, just kind of envision in your mind, here here is John, he is uh, standing around the throne of God, he's seeing all of these creatures that are crying, holy, holy, there's all of the elders that are surrounding the throne, those four seals have already been opened, and as each seal was opened, John would witness a horseman come out, and of course they would ride out upon the earth and, and all types of uh, cat- catastrophe and, and, uh, and circumstances would ensue as a result of those horsemen and the opening up of seals. And so that brings us to this fifth seal. And as this fifth seal is opened, John sees some things, and we're going to talk about that here this morning. It's going to be a little bit of Bible study and uh, hopefully at the end we'll see the relevance of knowing and understanding what the Lord is revealing to us, something that's going to take place, I believe, in the near future. Hasn't happened yet, but it certainly will happen. And so the first thing I want to talk about here this morning is, number one, the nature of the soul. John said that he sees uh, the souls of them that were slain for the Word of God. Now, the soul is a spiritual body that has all of the faculties and similarities of our physical body. Uh, when I was uh, when I was just a little boy, uh, I would hear the Sunday school teachers and my parents talk about 
our souls inside of us. And I didn't quite know what to think of my soul. I just kind of envisioned it like a little dot that was inside of me, and that was my soul. And yet our soul is not like a, something that, uh, like a, a sphere or an object that is inside of our chest, but rather it is what you see here is our physical body. And when John saw the souls of these, uh, these folks, he's seeing them just like a physical body. And so we need to understand that uh, the spiritual body of the soul uh, bears all of the faculties and the similarities of the physical body. Now, it is eternal in its nature, and get a load of this, not only is the soul of man eternal in its nature, but it always has a geographical location. Now, listen, don't ever think, I don't care how many times you hear it at a funeral service, when they say, well, another angel has gone back home, that's just not true, okay? 1 Corinthians 15 says that we start, our soul comes into existence when we are, uh, when we are conceived, when we become physical beings, alright? That's the beginning of us. We didn't live pre-incarnate in heaven, and I know the sentiment behind that. People are trying to say really nice, sweet things that, hey, I love this person, and so they came from heaven because I loved them and so forth. I understand, and I'm not trying to burst anyone's bubble here today. I'm certainly not trying to be nitpicky, but the fact of the matter is it's just not so. If you don't believe me, read 1 Corinthians 15 from the Word of God, and you can see it clearly for yourself. So the soul of man is once we come into existence, that soul is from that point through all of eternity, eternal in nature, and it always will have a geographical location. All of us here today, how many of you are alive? Raise your hand. All right, if you're not alive, raise your hand. All right, several of you are not alive. We'll get the ushers to to let you out. We don't want to smell you. (laughs) Right now, our souls, the geographical location of our soul is right here in our bodies, okay? But that's not all to this whole picture. Now, Genesis chapter 2, verse number 7 says that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, that is our physical bodies, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, That is, the spiritual man comes, that life comes from the breath of God. And as a result of that, it says that man became a living soul. If you will recall, the Lord told Adam that the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. Adam did not die physically that day. And that proved that when God looks down upon us, he sees us as a soul with a body, not a body with a soul. Man seems to get it all backwards, and we just kind of view, it's like, well, this is who I am, and I happen to have a soul. No, we are who we are. That is our soul, and we just happen to have these physical bodies that house us. Second Corinthians chapter number 5, if our earthly house 
of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building made without hands, eternal in the heavens. And that's talking about the geographical location of the soul. Now, in Genesis 35, verse number 18, when uh, Rachel is dying while she's giving birth to Benjamin, the Bible says that it came to pass as her soul was in departing for she died and then so forth. We live in some confusing times because of medical technology. Sometimes we put people on life support and that can be a good thing. I have known situations where people were put on life support and they were able to heal or recover or medicine or surgeries were performed and that's something that was actually used to save their life. I mean, we have organ transplants and we have all kinds of things that are not addressed from a scriptural standpoint. Technology causes a lot of confusion. I can remember being at my own father's deathbed there at Mission Viejo Hospital in Southern California. And I remember watching him there in the trauma center and they've got him on full-blown life support. I mean, everything. They've got him on a ventilator that's breathing for him. They've got an IV that's causing an artificial blood pressure and all of these things. And I'm looking here and laying and seeing my, my father's body laying there and blood is still circulating through his veins and there's still breath going in and out because of a machine. And I'm telling you, I, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but my spirit... My inner man, and listen, we, we sense things. I don't know if you, some are more sensitive than others to uh, spiritual and unseen things, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm watching him and I am hoping that there's hope that maybe, maybe he'll recover from this. But the whole time my spirit is telling me he's not here. He's not there. It's just, his corpse that is artificially, and I don't know if that's the case or not. I, you know, I would say that we'll find out when we get to heaven, but I'm not going to care when I get to heaven, all right? But I'm saying this because we need to understand that what God constitutes as death is when the soul departs from the body. You know, medical profession says, well, it's when the heart stops beating or when, you know, there's no brain activity or what have you. But the fact of the matter is, is when the soul departs from the body, that is when God sees us as gone. Now, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter number 16. Now, we've already said that the nature of a soul is that it has all of the faculties and the similarities of the physical body. And we see Jesus here telling a story. And listen, folks, this is not a parable. There is nowhere that the the Word of God says that this is a parable. In fact, the Bible says right here in verse number 19, Jesus says, there was a certain rich man. And I believe with all of my heart, and I think that we all should believe with all of our hearts, that Jesus is telling a literal story about two literal people that he perhaps he knew them. I, I would say that uh, maybe he did. Maybe this was during his lifetime. Maybe it was somebody before. And of course, Jesus was God manifest in the flesh. And so regardless of when and where 
this happened, these were two absolute individuals. One is named and the other is unnamed. But look with me in verse number 22. It says, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. All right, he died. This is not a carrying of Lazarus' physical body. This is the angels are carrying his soul into a place that is called Abraham's bosom. I don't have time for this study here this morning, but we've done it in times past. But uh, just, uh, and, and you can study this out for yourself. This is a crystal clear uh, teaching, and that is this Abraham's bosom is also referred to paradise. And during this time, paradise was not up in heaven where the throne of God is, but rather paradise was in the heart of the earth. Just real briefly, even though we're not doing that study, for some of you, I might just, you might be going, whoa, where, where did this teaching come from? Well, it's quite simple. Jesus told the thief on the cross, he said, verily, verily, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. And if you'll recall, Jesus also said, as Jonas was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, so shall the Son of Man be three days, or excuse me, Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So for three days and three nights, Jesus is in the heart of the earth. And if that day the thief was going to be with him in paradise, obviously, Paradise is in the heart of the earth. You say, well, how do you know that this is, this Abraham's bosom is a reference to paradise? Because we see that here in the heart of the earth, you've got hell. And look at the, the, the last part of verse 22. It says, the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell, he lift up his eyes being in torments. And so he's in hell. And then the Bible says that he looks across a great gulf. And let's go ahead and continue to read it here. Verse number 24, And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted. Thou art tormented, and beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And so we see here that these souls of the rich man and Lazarus, they are in the heart of the earth. One's in Abraham's bosom, and the other is in a place called hell. So Jesus certainly bears witness that the nature of the human soul, there is a geographical location during this life, but more importantly, after this life. Have you noticed that our culture today, including modern Christianity, seems to be, seems to revolve around the life that we're living in the here and the now? I mean, you would be hard-pressed to go to a modern, contemporary-style church today and find any preaching or teaching about the life hereafter. In fact, one famous author and sold millions and millions of dollars worth of books, 
he wrote a book entitled Your Best Life Now. And I think about that, it's like Paul said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus, he said, we're of all men most miserable. And so it's it's fool's gold, and it's a lie, and so much of, and, and the devil would have it to be so. If he can get you thinking about nothing more than just the American dream, having your family, having your homes, and having your cars, and all of these dreams and goals and ambitions, nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But the problem, and Jesus said it would be so in the last days, he said it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah and in the days of Lot. They're eating, they're drinking, they're marrying, they're giving in marriage, they're living basically godless lives. They're not living in light of the future judgment and the eternal destination of the soul, but rather people are living for the here and the now. Our souls and the souls in our text that we just read have voices. They have emotions and they have intellect. They have memory. They have a body that uh, for robes in order to be upon them and covering them. And not only that, they have a sense of justice. They're saying, how long, O Lord? How long until you're going to uh, to avenge us for uh, against those of, that dwell upon the earth for what they have un, done to us? Now, listen, and before I move on to the second point, always think twice when you say this or when you hear this. If you go to a funeral or you lose a loved one or a friend or an acquaintance, we hear it all the time. Well... They're in a better place. Always think twice because they may not be in a better place. Listen, someone could die a horrible, agonizing death. I mean, a drawn out where uh, whatever the illness or sickness uh, can be, it could cause all kinds of suffering, uh, suffering that even morphine and modern medicine and technology can't even touch that pain and that suffering. There are people who go through horrible, horrible things, and the human mind and psychology wants to say they're no longer suffering. Listen, this rich man, I don't know how he died. It could have been painful. It could have been horrible suffering. Jesus doesn't tell us. He just says that the rich man died. But listen, regardless of how he went about that, he wasn't in a, he's not in a better place. In fact, Jesus said in hell, he left up his eyes. He didn't say he lifted. It's not past tense. He didn't burn up. Listen, 2000 years later, not, listen, you can, you can accept this or you can reject this, but it's not going to change whether you, God didn't say, Hey, if everybody will believe this, then it'll be so. God doesn't care whether you believe it or not. If it's so, it is so. And we need to consider that the words of Jesus Christ were true. They were not unkind or unloving. There is, according to our Savior, a literal devil's hell, and it's a place of burning and torment and a place of memory. This rich man is there, and he's seeing Lazarus comforted, and he's got regrets, and he's thinking, why didn't I believe and trust the Word of God? 
Here I'm tormented and he's comforted. And all he could think about was his five brethren that were still alive. Oh, would you send Lazarus? Would you send him to warn them? If he just came back from the dead, they'd believe him. No, they would not. Abraham, he knew what he was talking about. He said, they got Moses and the prophets. They got the Bible. Listen, if you won't believe the Bible, it doesn't matter what kind of proof or signs or miracles anyone can show you. The only thing that really matters is believing and trusting the Word of God. Because it's so. Better think twice. I'm not saying that we shouldn't say it. Hey, if your loved one knew Jesus Christ as their Savior, was truly born again, and they, I mean, you have no shadow of a doubt, then you can say, hey, they're in a better place. All I'm saying is you just better think twice when you hear it and when you say it, because if it ain't true, it ought not be said. All right, that's the nature of the soul. Number two, I I, I tell you, I, I get... I get worked up a little bit because the devil has just, I mean, he's just lulled all of God's people to sleep. We just think, oh, well, if we just kind of stick our head in the sand and forget about this, if if we don't think about it, then it's not so. We're going to breathe our last breath, and we're going to find out that our soul's going somewhere, and it's going to be too late. Listen, there's not going to be time when your soul's departing from your body. It's like, oh, Lord, give me another chance. Some some people say, well, I'll get right with God like the thief at the cross. You may or you may not. You probably won't get that chance. Not only that, but listen, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart and He's drawing you and there's something inside of you saying, I need to get right, I need to get saved, then listen, you're not thinking the devil's not making you think that way. That's the Holy Spirit. And every time you resist that, your heart just gets a little harder and a little harder. It's dangerous, dangerous territory. And that's why Jesus is trying to get us to see the the nature and the value of our soul. Number two, I want to talk about the geography of the altar, just like there's a geography, a location and place for the human soul, there also is a place of this altar that we read about in Revelation here, these souls that are underneath the altar. Let me get back where I was at in Revelation 6. Now, there are, there are two options as to uh, where this altar is that John has seen. Let's let's go ahead and let's read it once again. Verse number 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Option number one, it could be that it's the temple that is on this earth. Now, if you've ever been over to uh, Israel and call it the Holy Land, if you will. And you know that on the Temple Mount is the uh, is uh, uh, an Islamic mosque. And yeah, there is part of the Wailing Wall and part of the foundation of Herod's Temple, not the original one that Solomon built. That's all been destroyed uh, numerous times. 
And so you're not going to find a temple and an altar in Israel today. But in Revelation 11, hold your place and just turn a few pages over. In Revelation 11, sometime during the tribulation period, there is going to be an altar and a temple on this earth. It says in verse number 1 of Revelation 11, There was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. That's three and a half years. So in the tribulation period, there is going to be a rebuilt temple. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that there's going to be something he calls the abomination of desolation, and that is when the Antichrist literally stands in the holy place. So obviously there's going to be that holy place here on this earth. Paul speaks of this Antichrist sitting in the temple of God, and then of course Ezekiel in numerous places prophesies of a rebuilt temple. So certainly it's an option that uh, there is a temple that John is seeing these souls underneath the altar of the temple here on this earth. Now there's been a lot of current events that speak of a rebuilding of the temple and a restoration of the Jewish sacrifices. I'm sure that some of you have heard a lot of talk about these ashes of a red heifer I mean, there's all kinds of, I can remember years ago, it used to be, I think they found the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I don't believe that. I believe in Ezekiel that that Ark of the Covenant, that it was taken back up to the third heaven. But whether, you know, whether you agree with me or not on on that, I I believe it to be true. And there are, you're going to find a lot of sensational, a, a lot of this stuff is sensationalism. And it's trying to get people thinking more about current events rather than Bible prophecy. And, uh, but some of it is certainly true. There are, there is a faction in Israel today that are very zealous about getting a temple rebuilt and reestablishing temple worship. And I think that probably, uh, well, not probably, but it is going to get more and more prominent as we get closer to the tribulation period, and certainly it's going to happen in the tribulation period. My opinion is the Antichrist in that first three and a half years is probably going to make, he's going to be making a treaty with Israel, and he's probably going to have something to do with peace in the Middle East and the reestablishing of that temple worship. But Daniel says that three and a half years, in halfway into that seven-year tribulation period, that the Antichrist is going to break that treaty with Israel, and that's when he is standing and sitting in the holy place, declaring himself to be God, as Paul said in 2 Thessalonians. So having said all of that, that's option number one. I know that there is a very popular King James Bible-believing teacher and commentator that he believes that Revelation 6, that this altar is talking about the altar here on this earth. And and I think that it's very possible and plausible that maybe the altar, the rebuilt altar on this earth, is the place where these 
these Jewish believers in the tribulation period where they were beheaded. I think it's very plausible. But I don't believe personally that what John is seeing, that he's seeing the souls of these under the altar on earth, but rather I believe option number two, uh, that he's seeing this under the altar that is in heaven. Look at Revelation chapter number eight with me. Revelation chapter number 8 and verse number 1. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. So this is taking place in heaven. And John said, And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar. So we've got an altar here in heaven having a golden censer, And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints. Now, let me just call a little time out right here. Notice that these prayers of the saints are being offered at this altar in heaven. And the reason I wanted to just kind of call a time out and draw attention to that is because, listen, brothers and sisters, if the devil ever tries to convince you that your prayers are not being heard, that your prayers are ineffective. I got good news for you. I, I don't know how the Lord's taking those prayers. I don't know. I guess they must, they must go up to the third heaven and they must turn into liquid. And God puts them in his bile. And one of these days, those prayers, he's going to pour them out on the altar. Listen, you may not get what you're asking for, you may, I can just about guarantee you, you're not going to get it when you want to get it. I'm not saying that the Lord doesn't answer our prayers here on this earth. But I'm simply saying, if you feel or think that he's not answering them here on this earth, it's okay, they're still of great value in all eternity, amen? Keep on praying. Don't stop praying. Don't get discouraged just because it appears like they're not having any effect. Prayer should be about God and not just simply about us. All right, so verse number four, And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. So this is a temple and a altar in heaven. Revelation 9, verse number 13 And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is where? Before God. And so my conviction, my belief, is the souls of these that are under this altar in Revelation 6, this isn't on the earth, but rather this is before the throne of God. Why is that important? Well, I'll tell you. There's something about geographic locations that make it real to us. You know, everything about this life, we relate to something that's tangible, a place that we can go. That's what makes it real. You can read about it in a book. Listen, I I read about the Holy Land and about Israel. I read about it in the Bible. I've seen it on the news, but until I went there and saw it, and touched it, and smelled it, it wasn't real. And that's the way that we are wired as humans. And it's so important, and that's why I think that so many believers today are so 
inundated with a bunch of self-esteem psychobabble, and the devil's keeping Bible doctrine and Bible prophecy. Listen, you, the things that I'm talking about here this morning, I've heard Christians say, well, well, who cares? What difference does that make? And they talk about modern preaching being relevant. Almost as if, if it doesn't have anything to do with my marriage relationship or my child raising or getting along with my boss or having more social friends and being able to put up with people and all that. If it's not about relationships, then it's not relevant. That's what they try to tell you. I'm, I'm telling you, Christians are suffering a faith lapse, a faith failure because the things of God are not real. They're just kind of out there in kind of la-la land, and God's got them right here to where we can see it and envision it and know what's going to happen and know where it's going to happen. Hell is real to me because I know that it's not a state of mind. It's a literal place in the heart of the earth. Number three, man, I'm preaching too hard for my voice. My last point is I want to talk to you about the voice of these martyrs. In verse number 10, it says here that these martyrs are crying with a loud voice. I mean, they're passionate about this. This isn't, oh, by the way. They're, they're, they are passionate about what they're saying. They're saying, how long, Lord, holy and true. Listen, this isn't that when they're crying out and questioning the Lord, they're not challenging him. They're not shaking their fist and saying, God, you don't care because you haven't you haven't avenged us. No, they're, they're saying, God, you're holy and true. But Lord, we've got a passionate desire for you to do something. We went through all of these things for you. When are we going to see the justice in this? When are you going to avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Listen, uh, modern Christianity would say, oh, that's not very Christ-like. You know, Jesus was forgiving and kind and loving. He said to the angry mob as they crucified him, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's, that's our Savior while on this earth. But let me tell you something, folks, when he comes back in Revelation 19 and verse number 11, he's coming back on a war horse and he's coming back with a sword coming out of his mouth and his eyes are going to be as a flame of fire. Listen, he came as a little baby lamb in a manger, the meek and the lowly savior, and he he submitted himself to all that mankind could throw at him, everything that the devil could do to him. He said, just give it your worst. I'll take it. I'll lay down my life for the human race because I love them and I want to save them. They need a savior. They need a sacrifice. And he shed his precious blood. But when he comes back, he's coming back to rule with the rod of iron. He's coming back with vengeance. I saw a bumper sticker, and at first I thought it was a little, maybe a little too far out there. And then I got to thinking, no, that's true. And people need to hear this. The bumper sticker said, Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he mad. 
We don't like to think about Jesus as being mad, but I'm telling you, He is long-suffering and merciful. And He is putting up with all of the blasphemy and the wickedness and the perversion that man... Listen, we just keep getting worse and worse and worse. And He is kind and loving and merciful. But that cup of His wrath is filling up. And it's gonna, there's gonna come a point where it's, the Lord says, I've had enough. And we need to remember that that is a righteous and a holy God, a righteous and a holy Savior. Yes, He's merciful. Yes, He's forgiving. But that cup is filling up. And one of these days, He's gonna pour out His wrath on the human race. I don't know about you, but I want to be on one of those horses behind him. Not those people that are coming against Israel there at Armageddon. The Lord's martyrs in the Old Testament were taken up into the third heaven when Jesus resurrected. Hebrews 11, 35 through 39, we won't go there. The martyrs of the church age are in the presence of Jesus Christ, just like all other believers who have died physically. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul knew that the Romans were going to take off his head, and he, he knew that that time was approaching. In Philippians 1, verse 23, he said, I'm in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. So listen, Paul ended up being a martyr in his day. And uh, uh, those martyrs, just like everyone who has died in Christ in the last 2,000 years, they're all in the presence of Jesus Christ. But these martyrs that John sees under the altar in heaven, these martyrs have been decapitated during the tribulation period. Now that's not speculation. That's not something that I just fabricated out of my mind for shock and awe. Listen, decapitation was historically very Roman. The pagan Romans, they would decapitate people who believed in Jesus of Nazareth. And I, I, you know, I don't want to shock you too bad, but if you go back in church history far enough, you will find that papal Rome did the very same thing to those who believe just like you and I. If you believe like I do about Jesus and salvation and baptism, if we were alive in the first three centuries after the time of the apostles, uh, for uh, up until the time of the Dark Ages, you would be in danger of having your head removed from your body Not by the pagan Romans, but by the papal Romans. And that's a historical fact, by the way. Uh, Listen, I have heard Catholic news anchors, I mean, totally rip on uh, the religion of Islam on how they treat Christians. And I just, I mean, I know they don't know any better, but I'm just scratching my head. It's like, you ought to study your church's history because your church used to do the same thing. these martyrs have been decapitated. Why? Because of their identification with Christ and their adherence to the Word of God. 
Look at Reve- excuse me, Revelation 20, verse number 4. I'll provide that on the screen. They're asking for justice, and they're told to wait, but uh, it says in chapter 20, verse 4, I saw the thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads and their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Listen, they got their reward. They're going to get their reward by reigning with Jesus Christ during the millennium. By the way, the same reward is available for you and I. Paul said, if we suffer with him, then we shall also reign with him. So folks, we have an untold number of souls during the tribulation period. They're underneath the altar and they're waiting. They're waiting in the time of, for the time of God's vengeance upon the earth. They're waiting until the rest of their brethren are decapitated and join them. And then at the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus comes back, us and them will be reunited. If we have suffered, then we will be reigning with Jesus Christ. And I close with this thought. It was the title of the message, and that is simply this. What are we complaining about? What are we complaining? Do you believe that what we just read is true? You believe it's going to happen? Can, can we compare what we're going through with what they're going to be going through for their, uh, their adherence to the Word of God and to Jesus? Listen, we can go out and we can pass out tracts, and I, I know people that have had people spit on them. I've never had anybody literally spit on me when I offered them a tract. I've had them point blank give me some pretty uh, pretty drastic sign language, and I've had them say some very blasphemous things. I mean, horrible expletives with the name of Jesus Christ or the name of God in the same sentence. I've had some of that happen. I've had people that didn't like me or didn't want me to be their friend that wouldn't listen to me. But listen, brothers and sisters, what are we complaining about compared to these who have literally had to lay down their necks. What are we complaining about compared to the Apostle Paul, who had to lay down his neck just because he was a Christian? True Christians have historically been outcasts in this world. Something about the 1940s and 1950s, with the great evangelism movements and the great crusades in America. A lot of good came from those crusades, but I'll tell you, the leaven that came into the lump is it became so popular. Listen, there have been preachers that have been like rock stars among among Christians, among evangelicals, celebrities, if you will. And somewhere along the lines with the use of media, television, and radio, and newspaper, they became celebrities, and the whole Christian world kind of thought, wow, I can be Christian, 
but I can be cool. I can fit right in. There's a lot of people, plenty of people that believe just like me. And, and listen, I, it, it, I'm not going to suffer any reproach. You know, there was a time where you suffered a little bit of reproach if you didn't go to church. And all of that has weakened us and softened us to the point to where we complain and we whine because somebody doesn't like us. Somebody doesn't think that we're wonderful. Somebody doesn't understand us. They won't take our track. They don't invite us to their get-togethers anymore. You know, we're living in a day and age where if you take a biblical stand and you say, you know what, I'm not drinking beer and having a glass of wine with them, you're not going to be invited to their get-togethers. They're not going to want you around just simply because you're living according to the Bible not according to this culture. That's not pleasant. Nobody likes that, but historically Christians have always been outcasts. 1 Corinthians 4.13, Paul said, being defamed, we entreat. Listen, they're defaming us, but we're still trying to get them to God. We're still trying to help them with the gospel. They despise us and they think that we're horrible. And we're still trying to get them saved, and we're still trying to love them. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. <laughs> Let's have an invitation on that concept. Hey, would you like to become the filth and offscouring? Uh, would you like for the world to, to view you that way? Come on down here to the altar and receive Jesus. The human mind is going to say, I'm not interested in that. Well, let me tell you something. It's way better than a devil's hell. And with all of that, with all of that knowing, knowing that Jesus is your Savior and your sins are forgiven, as Brother James said during Sunday school, we're on the winning side Hey, can we not put up with just a little bit of being treated like the filth, the off-scouring of this world? We are faced with daily opportunities to stand for Christ or to deny Him. It may be more subtle and the consequences may seem very small, but in heaven they are not. God's not going to judge us based on how we lived our life compared to how uh, the, the time of the martyrs and the time of the Apostle Paul. Listen, I, I think I think that God looks down. You know, one thing we've got going, uh, I don't know if we got it going for us today, but we live in a day and age where you could have done a lot of fun things today that your flesh and your art, you could, you could have went and played golf. It might be a little cold for golf. You could have, watched your favorite movie on TV. You could have went and spent time with your friends. You could have drove across town. There was a time where you couldn't do all of that. There was a time where people, if they wanted to enjoy some music, they had to walk a few miles every Sunday to church so that they could sing and hear the piano play and have some musical enjoyment. We don't have to do that today. We've got everything right here at the snap of our fingers. 
You had to say no to a lot of good things just to come to church this morning. I think that the Lord looks down and says, hey, look at those people. Hey, Gabriel, look at that. I think when we go out when it's cold yesterday and we see a handful of our people bundled up holding signs that say you must be born again, don't you think that the Lord Jesus says, hey, Michael, look at that. Look what those idiots are doing for me. (laughs) They don't care. They like identifying with me. We don't have to suffer a whole lot today, but there's still some things. We're still faced with an opportunity to stand for him or deny him. Titus 1 verse 16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. You can deny him with your works, even if you don't deny him with your mouth. And I close with these thoughts here. God has a special reward for those who suffer with him. Revelation 2, verse number 10, this is still church stuff here. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. I think probably our biggest problem and the reason we complain is because we overvalue this life. And we undervalue the life to come. Revelation 12 verse 11 says, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. I think that the Bible gives us a proper perspective of life and death. What are we complaining about? We're not getting our head chopped off. We're not being tortured. We're not being arrested. Hey, those days may come. Those days may come. Someone was talking about, uh, we were talking to somebody that was going through some health problems and talking about how things were a year ago and how horrible they were. And then we got to thinking, you know, it, may, it could get worse. We may look, we may look back at the two, three years of COVID and say, man, weren't those the good old days? <laughs> We don't know what tomorrow holds, but I will say this, we have it made in America. We have the privilege to stand up for Jesus Christ with very little, very little reproach, very little consequences, very little suffering. We ought to take full advantage while we're in these good old days because things could change. We got nothing to complain about. We have everything to rejoice and to be thankful and to say, Lord, I want to make a stand for you. I want to be associated with this crowd who didn't love their life unto the death, who who had a testimony. The only thing that mattered to them was their relationship to Jesus Christ and their obedience to the Bible. I want to be in that crowd. I don't want to be in the crowd of this world.